This is a download from BFM 89.9, the business station. The Property Show on BFM 89.9, the business station. Good morning. You're listening to The Property Show on the Morning Run, and I'm Philip C. On today's property show, we are in conversation with James Lau. He's an associate director at Dr. Nick and Associates, one of the country's leading multidiscipline consultant engineering firms. As we get his perspective on the latest flash floods in Klang Valley and how different urban and flash floods are from rural floods. Welcome, James, to the property show. So these flash floods, why were these flash floods so unprecedented in its location? Was it just the length of the rainfall that came through? There are a number of different, what we call dynamics there, so you the rainfall because it was very long. What actually happened was that uh, you see the rising waters in the main river. So when the main river system get you know the capacity is used up, then you have the minor system that you know flow into the major system, so the urban areas and the minor river. They start to feel the impact of you know not being able to discharge into the these mm. major. And so what you have is a, a kind of effect where the main systems get suddenly you know inundated. And the, and the minor system just can't discharge. And then suddenly, you know, things start to... Uh, you have these areas starting to get flooded, you, which you don't normally experience to the extent of the, you know, the depth. Much more significant than historically reported. Yeah, so these discharge systems, were they obstructed or were they just not naturally ready to take in this amount of work, or this amount of volume of water? I, I think it's both. One is, of course, uh, when, when the systems get overloaded, it, it loses its ability to cope with additional flows that come in. And then when the flows are also transferred, sometimes you also get the transfer of debris, mud, sand or silt, which can take up available capacity in those channels. Uh, but it's very com- it can be a very complicated scenario uh, and it depends on, you know, site to site exactly what is actually happening in terms of the dynamics and, and the ability. Yeah, because it, we, both of us, we were, you know, in our different capacities looking and seeing the, the area, right, that was impacted. And it is true that certain parts were more inundated with water or were more deeply impacted versus other areas. And I think a location in mine was Srimuda, which we did see quite uh, a lot of water. And I think to a certain extent, the water was still elevated for quite a long time. Why are these locations specifically vulnerable? Uh, So uh, Srimuda is a very (laughs) interesting uh, location. And I think it will be studied definitely next couple of months or next few years in terms of a, a very good case study for flood mitigation or disaster preparedness. I know the authorities are still investigating and of course the results will reveal informally what they, uh, what they, what is actually happened. But what we do know is this. Uh, the stream water area looks like a bowl. Uh, you know, the flooding was likely caused from both the combination of the localised area and the wider scale river. So actually it borders along Sungai Klang, the downstream of Sungai Klang. So Sungai Klang was probably, uh, you know, started to rise, probably got very high. And then the discharge from that three motor area could not get into Sungai Klang. Mm. Probably at some point, you know, just when the flooding at some point. And then what happened was as the water started to build up, it couldn't discharge directly into Sungai Klang. So it started to build up. And then potentially also Sungai Klang, potentially there was maybe one or two locations where the flow was diverted over top the protection banks. I, I don't know. We will find out in detail later. And also, we also have the surrounding area. So when when I visited this area, you have some very low-lying areas, some other areas which are higher. 
So what actually happened is potentially some diversion of flows in the higher area probably also went into the lower, lower areas. And then the water just built up and built up. And because it's like a bowl and they didn't have the ability to release the water back into Singai Plan, water just stayed ponded in that area for mm. you know, several days. So uh, they got the emergency pump. And I wonder whether are there many of these equivalent stream would a bowl-like designs around the Klang Valley and in Malaysia and urban centres. Are we seeing a lot of these kind of bowl-shaped type of places where water is easily contained? I can't say for sure, but of course there are there are definitely more areas like this. To what extent, of course, it depends on of course the local planning. I think there's this area also has historical flooding and it's been it's a very mature township. And of course, the more modern townships, if they actually adhere to the, the better design or more up-to-date design, we probably have less. So, I mean, as a country, we have, I mean, flash floods are not alien to us. I mean, when we look at the news, flash floods have been around for a very long time, right? Well, I guess the, the question in my mind is that, is this a, is why have we not learned the lessons of past flash floods? Is it because the nature of flash floods is that they come very fast and they exit out very fast? Is that why we don't really take heat from lessons of the past? When, when we look at it at, at a purely engineering level or the, or the hydrological level, the movement of water, um, we, we know that, that two things actually contribute to flooding, how much rain actually falls and the speed in which uh, the flow, the flow flood, uh, moves. And what we actually find is that um, with more urbanisation, you get greater risk of flash flood. So you have more paved area, more buildings, etc. And more rapid movement of water, you potentially increase the risk of flash flood. So while in the past, maybe there's less development or people, you know, there's more open areas for waters to dissipate and naturally flow into the ground. As you more urbanise the area, you actually have this risk of flash flooding uh, increasing. So mm-hmm. that's obviously what's happening. You also have good design and trying to mitigate these issues. But by the very nature of more development and and paved area, you actually increase the risk and you see more risk of uh, flash flooding. Yeah, so very, very interesting point because I reflect also on, on uh, uh, I've been around for some time and, you know, we always quite known that KL City Centre had a lot of flash floods. Just a little bit of rain would incur, you know, a huge amount of flash floods and that's why I think smart tunnels built that helped, I think, put, put less pressure on the system and so you see less occurrence of these kind of flash floods in KL although they just, they still do happen. So my question is, when you talk about the indirect impact, is are there scenarios where the development of another area will have repercussions in other areas? Uh, yes, uh, definitely. Um, when we uh, develop, um, we develop models to look at flooding, and we do not develop. If you develop a good model, appropriate model, you do not develop a model in just looking at one area itself. You actually look at. The whole system, of course, it, it takes a bit of effort and the level of detail of the information that you have. But what we find is you can potentially solve a flooding somewhere and then potentially transfer the flooding somewhere else. So the dynamics of what you do in a very complicated river or urban drainage system has to be considered uh, in totality. Of course, there are some very good basic design requirements uh, at a very local level. But if you're not very careful with 
as we become more com- more developed, yeah. the t- systems become more complicated, diversions, storages, uh, and more rapid flows. You need this more complicated and powerful tools to actually understand uh, what is happening. So, yeah. And this is a challenge, isn't it? Because I only worry about who does this modeling, who does this metric, because let us say a developer or someone develops a new place, you know, as we build our urban sprawl and uh, sprawl further out, right? We tend to do modeling in our specific location, isn't it? We don't do the implied implications of what does it mean for the surrounding areas or to adjacent locations, isn't it? That is the, the challenge we have, do we? In the studies that we, we do for, for, for government clients or even private clients, we do try our best to actually cope with this, what we call uh, potential risk of changing of land use, etc. But of course, it really depends on the level information that we have uh, and, and in, in some cases we do not have all the information at the time when we do the strategic plan and then also then when the actual development of the, the land uh, what how the de- developer develops it also has an impact we are not privy to the information so you know then there needs to be a post-assessment on how that development interacts with what we have already identified as a risk. And I guess that's 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 the implication, the concern I have, right, too, which is the continuous dynamic modelling required. Uh, because A, we're seeing more extreme weather patterns, so your scenario planning needs to be even amped up even further. And secondly, your surroundings are changing very fast. So someone has to continuously, dynamically model the different flood flows that come through, right? You, you can take a conservative approach, but some things... Uh, which we normally do to count for some of these variables. But you're spot on in saying that they, uh, what you call it, dynamic modeling. It's, it, it's expensive and it's very hard to quantify. Uh, but as I worked, <laughs> I say, I say I worked before in the UK and Singapore. They actually have a process in which any kind of development, there's a process in which they continuously reassess a new development uh, request come in. And in Singapore, uh, under certain systems, they actually do a daily assessment. So every time there's new data, they reassess the systems and they rerun the models potentially on a daily or a weekly basis to actually understand what are the changing risks. Today, in part of the Property Show, we are in conversation with James Lau from Dr. Nick & Associates. We'll be back with more after these messages. Stay with us, BFM 89.9. Welcome back. You're tuned in to the Property Show on the morning run. I'm Philip C. And with me today is James Lau. He's the Associate Director at Dr. Nick & Associates as we discuss urban and flash floods. James, give me a sense. In Malaysia, paint the picture for us, right? What percentage of our geography or population is flood pro? That's a very good question. I actually had, so I asked a colleague who actually uh, did a study back in 2010 on flood mapping in Malaysia and in terms of the data that had, historical data from 1963 to about 2010, you can say about 10% of the total area has been affected or experienced flood in Malaysia. I'm just wondering out loud whether this is a situation where as we build further out and I think about where the flood is happening, Banting, Shalam, this is all urban sprawl further away from the city centre, isn't it? Yes. So you can, as, as we said in the first part, there, as you increase development and more urban areas, the faster the flow, there's increased risk 
of uh, flash flooding. And when you think about our drainage system, you you kind of applied it through the the, the, the discharge location, right? Um, but people tend to associate that with drainage system. Give us a distinction between natural ways of discharging flow versus, I guess, drainage systems which are man-made. So natural flows, of course, you have. We start with the highland streams, then you have the upstream rivers, then the mid rivers, and then you have. The, across the Moaras. So the upstream streams are much faster and then you go much gentler. So there's a much, but the river channels also increase. Upstreams are very uh, narrow and then as you get bigger, you have the bigger channel. So naturally, river systems are designed to cope with ever-increasing flow and volumes as they get uh, bigger. Um, so then you get the urban environment. Uh, the urban environments, uh, when the flows reach, they come relatively fast and they can they have to discharge directly into this river system. And for them to discharge, of course, there must be available capacity. Of course, when uh, the river levels are low and normal, it's quite easy for an urban system to discharge the main river across interactions. But as you get ever-increasing flows in like major river rainfall event that what we experienced uh, last week, uh, then the capacity is limited. And then there's potentially backing up or limitation in the urban environments to discharge into the Do you think capacity was limited by human waste by debris that blocked these uh, discharge locations, natural um, or unnatural? Yeah, I mean, it's no doubt that if you have uh, uh, something physical which which is inside the drainage channel, which takes up capacity, will of course limit the, the discharge of the flow. Uh, but I, I, in this case, I don't think it is definitely a contributing factor, but I don't think it's a major factor. Okay. A lot of the river systems. Mm, because we see, event, yeah. yeah, because we see a lot of discussion that you know landslides and def- deforestation caused by landslides then translated to debris that block these river pathways. So you think that's possible, but that's not the re- main cause of what caused the flash floods in these locations, probably. Yeah, yeah, definitely. Um, I think that until they actually release or they collect more data to actually collaborate that, that assumption at the moment, at least for the last flooding that we experienced last week, I think because river levels in general increase quite gradually but at a consistent pace because of the newest rate. I, I guess the question on many people's minds is really do we model and know when are the next flood locations you know, and simulate? If we saw something like this and there's another 10% increase in rain or 20% increase in rainfall, right? Can, do we know where the next locations are? Does anyone know, actually? Um, yes, we, 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 we can simulate and we can predict. But the problem with that is it cannot be what we call uh, validate. So we can predict flooding in quite a number of different locations because of, of the nature of the models that we have. But what we do not have is the dynamic and the reality of how these mm. storms occur, where they fall first, yep. where they fall later. And this last storm, it just continues rain for nearly two days, a day and a half. We don't normally run our models uh, continuously at that level of rainfall for that long. So it's another scenario which we have to, you know, include into potentially one of our risks. And I wonder, right, if you were to model the situation now with this amount of rainfall, how accurate is the model versus the reality that actually took place? We know that if it it is all based on very good uh, science developed back since the 1920s. So the, the, the prediction of flows and uh, 
you know, the, the, the engineering and the science recording kind, it's, it's quite robust. So what we find is that during a flood event, you actually have very a number of very different dynamics taking place. Rainfall is one of them, but also, you know, the different dynamics, the, the control structures, the gates, and you highlighted potentially the sediment level, yep. uh, you know, the, the, the local issues. That we don't have. If we get that data, possibly can actually simulate what we call a replicate flooding event to relatively high accuracy. So I guess you can try your best, but I guess then the issue is that these things will occur and then the answer is how do we mitigate that? And of course, there's been a lot of controversy about whether we could have mitigated this, uh, whether I think the Hululanga gates could have been opened earlier. Uh, what's your take on that, actually? Yeah, in hindsight, there is a lot of things we could have, should have, would have done, I think, to help mitigate this flooding. I think on a more practical level, I think lessons will have to be learned. And of course, uh, if we take just the Sri Muda example, I think there needs to be a careful reassessment of potentially the disaster preparedness or, you know, the whole uh, SOP in terms of managing a high flood level. Of course, the authorities did their best in terms of what they could have done. For many years, I think Sri Muda never experienced such level of flooding. Just in this case, thing happened. I think the last time I read somewhere is back in 1995 or 1996 was the last major flooding. So in the last 20 odd years, they were relatively safe. It's just this particular event, yeah. uh, something happened. So important lessons need to be learned in terms of potentially the management of the flood or the water levels uh, for that catch. So help me contrast, um, because when this event took place, this was in early December, uh, we're now entering the East Coast monsoon season where floods actually are a recurring event every year, right? Actually, have there been any lessons learned uh, every year? Because we keep on hearing the same floods taking place year on year in, year out, right? Let's just check Kelantan as, uh, as an example. Kelantan, uh, of course the Muawar Kelantan, um, it is known as a floodplain area. So if you develop in that area, uh, the natural system will flood. So a lot of the residents there are quite comfortable with flooding because they know it's going to happen. They know ways to live with it and manage it. Whereas us in the urban environment, I mean, to be but to be fair, the flooding is really more that was quite quite extreme. Uh, we are not used to actually managing or living with, you know, extreme flood water. Uh, that's something potentially we need to consider. Uh, and in terms of Lantern and our East Coast countrymen, they, they live with it and they're quite prepared. Uh, the cost to fully mitigate uh, those kind of floods are, are quite extreme. Multiple billions. So they have to prioritise investment, etc. So people, you know, they live with the floods, they are prepared for it as much as possible. Of course, the last big flood in 2014, 2015 was very extreme, even for them, where they had something like 1,200 to 1,800 millimetres of rainfall falling across several days. Now, that, that is real extreme hmm. uh, rainfall. I guess that's the, that, that leads me to adaptation. You know, people think that we, well, this, they link it with climate and mitigation. Climate mitigation is a long-term matter. So then we have to learn to adapt. And I think you give a very nice example that in Kelantan, adaptation is, I'm willing to live <laughs> with this, right? And with the Klang Valley, because of the cost being so high, will the government have to make very tough decisions to say, look, you know, you guys, you can't stay in these locations. They are, they are prone to floods and with extreme weather conditions, um, it's best not to stay there and mark it out. So the next question in my mind is, can we adjust the national physical plan, the state structure plans to mark these locations and ensure that people's lives are not affected? Uh, yes, I think that that's quite uh, possible. 
possible, but I think it's very hard to do in, in a hindsight kind of approach. Uh, mm. I think if you do it uh, moving forward, I think that that's fine. Uh, the people who are already in third-prone areas, it's very hard for them to move. They, they've invested the properties, uh, the livelihood. That, that we know is very hard to ask people to move once they've already settled somewhere. If not, there is a huge amount of compensation costs. But there are other kinds of uh, adaptation, mitigation, which can be can be used. I, I'm just going to just blurt out a few you know, that there are essentially flood gates, flood barriers, you know, uh, localized flood warnings or sirens. Uh, you know, community preparedness. Can the community actually collectively prepare for flooding? Uh, in this case, what we experienced in Sri Nuda, they were not prepared by any means. So there are some of these uh, adaptation or what we call softer approaches to mitigation of, of flooding impacts, hmm. which can be adapted. You know, maybe you just need to have uh, a better flood evacuation pathway, personal household flood preparedness, kids, etc. So these are just some of the things which can be implemented and help. Yeah, so that's interesting because you, your, your recommendations are split into two, I must say. One is you talk about the barriers and the glades and that's construction, right? We're going to touch that shortly. And the other one is, I think, the, the softer parts, which is having the mitigation, the evacuation strategies to drive forward. And there should be relatively quick wins to do, in my view, and relatively low cost. But the big ticket items are the gates and the barriers. They will cost a lot of money. And so when you look at a location like Streamwood, and all, all the surrounding Klang, Bukit Raja and such, do we really have the hard infrastructure to at least manage it? Uh, I think it really depends on if you do a full flood damage assessment to different areas and you can calculate what are the potential you know, damage costs for an area like uh, Sri Muda and you put it in dollars and cents, then you can actually you do the what we call the full economic costing, the full damage economic model. You will actually find that it's well, the, the investment terms of putting in potentially more protection is well is well worth it in terms of you know for the protection of the people but actually where that money comes from taxes uh, is it a special fund etc that is another question yeah which is I guess the the question then which is when you see the 12th Malaysia plan and budget 2022 we don't have any of this allocation at the moment right so it has to be built bottom up correct me if I'm wrong you don't uh, see no, any uh, allocations I, for physical uh, infrastructure yes, right um, the budget for CASA in 2021, they have a budget of 3.47 billion, but that's both for the management and delivery, uh, and specifically uh, for JPS. And 2021, I think they have a budget of 569 million for just pure flood mitigation, but this is for the whole country. Uh, But there are other things that can be done, sustainable drainage, coastal reclamation, which also have budgets, which can actually help all these different... When you talk about the CBA, the cost-benefit analysis here, and... In your assessment, right, if, if let's say we hypothetically assume that the cost here is 10 billion ringgit, in your assessment, is it worth investing? It is, right, I guess. Considering I, I, that I, the frequency is going to happen every 10 to 15 years. Yeah, um, we, I had a look back at the historical flooding in Malaysia and we had a major flooding event in one particular state every five to six years. Hmm. So I think the last the last significant one in terms of the localized is Penang, I think. Uh, 2017, but then of course you have the 2014, 20 plantan, Trigano and Pahang. But what we, what is more interesting is, um, at least for me who deals with water, you know, too much water, dirty water, too little water, is after this flood, we expect a drought to happen in the next two or three years. So that's going to be actually So climate change, if people are all talking about climate change, rainfall and flooding, what the other side of it, potentially are going to experience a greater water stress on our resources uh, in the next, we should expect another big event in the middle one or two years. 
two or three years. Okay, well, on that <laughs> ominous message, uh, thank you very much, uh, James. Thank you for that insight. Very helpful. Uh, that's all the time we have for today's property show. I've been speaking to James Lau, Associate Director at Dr. Nick and Associates, as we get his perspective on the latest flash floods and how different urban and flash floods are from rural floods. I'm Philip C. signing off for the morning run. We have the 10 a.m. news bulletin coming up next, followed by Enterprise, BFM 89.9. The Property Show on BFM 89.9, The Business Station. Thank you for listening to this podcast. To find more great interviews, go to bfm.my or find us on iTunes. BFM 89.9, The Business Station.